For the next several months, uh, we're going to do a study through the book of James. I'll be teaching it, and then uh, Bob will be helping at times when I'm not around, and we'll be teaching through this book. book of James is a very practical book. The book of James is unique in that it was specifically written for Jewish believers. It was written by the brother of Messiah Yeshua, Yaakov. We call it James. Anybody know why we call the book James? Mr. Meiri. Yes, up to that time, if you remember, the biblical text was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. There was a Syriac version as well. But in Europe, it was written in Latin. And if you wanted to translate it from Latin into a different language, usually you got burned at the stake. Okay, and so the uh, King James eventually, you know, as because you had the Reformation period and all that stuff, he had the book uh, translated, the Bible translated, and uh, part of what he wanted was his name in the text. So the actual name of the book of James is actually Yahav or whatever that would be in either Latin or Greek. Uh, but uh, Yeshua's brother's name was Yaakov. It wasn't James. And so uh, even though the notes say James, in your text you'll notice that it says Yaakov with parentheses James. So we'll be going through this, this book together. Uh, some people go, wow, I didn't know Yeshua had any brothers. I thought that, his, that that didn't occur. No, if you look at the biblical text, you'll notice that he not only had a couple of brothers... Yachav being one, Yehuda being another. Both of them writing books in the New Covenant text. He also had some sisters whose names we do not know. But I would guess that one of them was probably named Mary. Since about half the women in the first century in the Jewish community were called Miriam. That was their name. Alright. Um, the book of James, uh, the book of Yachav is really a... I think a very practical book. I'm not going to go into an awful lot of, of uh, detail on it, but it's not a long book. It's a short book. It's written uh, to, again, the Jewish believers outside the land of Israel. Uh, we see that the very first verse, it says, Yahweh, a slave of God and of the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, to the 12 tribes in the diaspora, to those Jewish people in Galut, outside the land of Israel. That's not just some nice little phrase. That is actually a geographical statement. He is writing to Jews outside of the land of Israel. Uh, Yaakov is the leader of the Messianic community. All right? if, you get, if you read in the book of Acts, you've got the twelve disciples who become the twelve apostles of the Shlechim. The key pillars of that group are um, uh, Kepha, Peter, uh, Yochanan, John, and Yaakov, James. Uh, Yoch, uh, James and John are brothers. James is killed rather quickly. He is executed by uh, uh, by Herod. Uh, the uh, the uh, I think it was Agrippa the first. Anyway, uh, yeah, it would have been Agrippa the first, the son of, of Herod. So he dies early in the text. Um, and so whenever James is referenced after that, it's actually a reference to James, the brother of Yeshua, Yaakov. Uh, you might say, it seems a little nepotistic to me to have Yeshua's brother, the leader of the Messianic community. But actually it was very common back then. Uh, in fact, I, w- I would point this out that 
a relative of Yeshua continued to lead the Messianic community in the land of Israel or near the land of Israel until in the Bar revolts of 132. All right, so you have first Yaakov, the brother of Yeshua, and then you have Yeshua's cousins through Clophus, and there's a reference to this actually in uh, in another location, another place, and I can't think about a word. Yeah, I think it was Eusebius wrote about it. Uh, but you see that the brothers of Yeshua or the cousins of Yeshua, uh, and it becomes more and more distant. They're the ones leading the Messianic community out of the land of Israel until 132. Now the emphasis of the book is really very practical. To encourage these Jewish believers in the practical living out of their faith in Messiah Yeshua as God's slaves. That's it. Right? The whole point of the book, practical faith, living out your faith, uh, is full of commands. There are 54 verbal commands. 54 verbal commands. You shall do this. How many of you like being told what to do? None of you. Don't lie to me. Mr. Friedman. You of all people. People don't like to be told what to do. We don't. But there are 54 verbal commands in this book. Okay? So a lot of challenge to the people in this book. But what's, what's very important in this, I want to mention, and then we're going to move into the text here, is that the very first verse, Yaakov calls himself a slave of God. I love that phrase. Uh, Paul, Shaul, often calls himself the same thing, a slave. And who came first? It's hard to know. People speculate, but it's very, 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 very probable that Yaakov is the first book written in the New Covenant. All right? It's not the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are written much later. Very, very probable that Yaakov's book is written around 50 all right, so it's probably it is again more than likely the earliest book. The next one would be the book of Galatians, written by Shaul. And so the phrase where he says a slave of God is something you also read uh, in Paul. You know these these statements of deference, these statements of obligation toward God. And the Greek word that is used because this word the book is written originally in Greek, sent to Jews living outside the land who, who would have spoke and read primarily Greek. The word for slave here is the word doulos, which has a very specific meaning. Right? There were levels of slaves, levels of servants. Even we say slave. When, you, when, we, when I say the word slave, what pops into your mind is not this cushy job. All right? In American history, when we think about the word slave, we think about... Uh, African slavery in America in you know from about 1600 to about 1865 that's really what we think in America and it wasn't good it was really not good uh, historically when we think of slavery around the world slavery is always very negative it's not like being a servant not like being a servant you know, servants are different. When I was, my father was a kid, he used to eat in the kitchen with the servants till he was 13. It's different in San Francisco in the 1930s, okay? It's different. A servant is like a butler or a maid. They actually get paid. They have rights. Slaves have no rights. Shaul says, or I'm sorry, Yaakov says here, a slave of God, a low bond slave, the lowest of the low. The toilet cleaner. The person who does the most disgusting jobs. I am a slave 
of God and of the Lord Yeshua. It's interesting that he references his own brother here in terms of of his servanthood. So, for us, as we think about the book of Yaakov, as we think about this book over the next few weeks, one of the things we need to consider is our perspective in terms of our lives. Do we really view ourselves as slaves to God and to God's purposes? Do we actually view ourselves in that kind of a, a, a light? As people without choice, as people of obligation, as people who follow commands from God. That's what we need to chew on over the course of the next few weeks because it really does make a difference in how we live our lives. Again, the whole point of the book is the practical living out of this new faith in Yeshua and you have to be willing to start with an understanding of who's boss. Who's boss? Are you the boss or is God the boss? All right. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at the text beginning in verse 2. And I'm going to just read this straight through. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all without hesitation and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let the brother in humble circumstances boast in his high position and the rich person in his humble position because like the flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun arises with a scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So also the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will wither away. Happy is the one who endures testing because when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which the Lord promises to those who love Him. So here we have a long bit of text. And it really has to do with a topic which I think we need to hear. This is why I'm going through this book going, you know, I think we could all really take some good encouragement out of this. With several of you now in the change of life, uh, through the years, you know, whether you're getting older as in older or older as in getting out of college and starting real life, you know, life is difficult, isn't it? It's a lot harder than you initially thought. It's tiring to work that 8, 10, 14 hour day, depending on what is expected of you on the job. But life has a certain drag to it, difficulty to it. There are testings and trials that occur in life. It's not apples to apples anymore. It's not like that. The, the, the minor difficulties of life. I think for many of you, you are going through major difficulties of life. And so it's very practical in verse 2 where he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you get dumped on on the job. Or your car gets smashed for no apparent reason. For a second time within a year. You know, life has trials and difficulties. That's normal. What's difficult also, though, is how to respond to the difficulties and trials of life. You know, you can't approach difficulties and trials in life as if they're not there. That's not healthy. 
We have to understand and appreciate that difficulties are there for all kinds of reasons. There was a book written many years ago, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Written by Kushner. It's a terrible book. Okay, Because theologically, it's utterly flawed. In the book, he basically sums it up by saying, God is not all-powerful. Because bad things happen to good people, because God is not able to stop all the bad things from happening to good people. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because we're living in a broken world. Even good people do bad things. We're living in a sinful world. That's why bad things happen. That's why a co-worker doesn't get their job done and you get stuff dumped on you. That's why somebody is texting and hits you and uh, you know smashes up your car. Or any number of things that go on in our lives. The trains aren't functioning because there's too much snow. And so therefore, the track don't work. God, why are you doing this to me? I have an appointment to make. Traffic on 94. Why is it always backed up at my most inconvenient time? It's not because God is playing around with you. It's not because God hates you. No, no. It's just we're living in a broken world. Everybody is rubbernecking for some dumb reason about something that doesn't matter. God allows difficult times in our lives, I think, because it grows us and moves us towards spiritual maturity. It's perspective. Now, I have to say this. If you are engaged in sin, if you are not following God's instruction in your life, and difficulties come into your life, it could very well be that God is allowing them because He's trying to get your attention. All right? Or I mean, if you rob banks, you're going to eventually go to jail. All right? So if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. All right? But it is when we're following God and living for Him in the normal realities of life that difficult things come into our lives and God allows it because it is part of a refining process. I was going to use this illustration of of, uh, the refining process for ore, for gold, for different things. I was going to talk about the training and endurance necessary to become a good boxer. I said, forget all that. The reality is, is that in life, life is like a crucible and the temperature gets heated up and ultimately God allows it because it will purify us and strengthen us for what God wants us to do as long as our attitude is good. Again, consider it all joy when difficult things happen. That demands an attitude and a perspective that directs one's attention to God with the hope that God is definitely in charge even when things are not looking so good. It is a proper attitude. It always has to start with a proper attitude. The, uh, the Greek word that is used in here definitely speaks of external events. External events. So again, I want us to have that kind of an understanding. So much goes on that just drives us crazy. That's totally beyond our control. But when those things happen, is your attitude one where you are looking to God and you are just relying on Him and turning to Him and crying out to Him for His strengthening and help for your life? The, uh, the, in verse 3 it says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The word knowing there again in the Greek, and I don't like using all the Greek words because nobody really needs to know it anyway. Knowing there has this understanding of gaining knowledge under experience. 
gaining knowledge under experience. I would know how, I mean, part of the reason I know how to drive pretty much anywhere in the world is because I had to drive in Manhattan. Many years ago, I had to drive in Manhattan. If you can drive in Manhattan, you can drive anywhere. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, all right? It's amazing. Driving through Israel, you know, a piece of cake. I drove through Manhattan. Experience trains us. Experience trains us. Many of you right now are being stretched in your jobs, all right, because it's new. You know, I was talking to Abe earlier today. I mean, he was through the crucible of employment. And he was saying, you know, his new job, his new position, somebody dumped something on him. It was like, ah, what's this? This is nothing compared to what I've gone through before. In experience, we gain knowledge. And that knowledge will help us move forward in life. But think about it in terms of spiritual experience. You know, when we go through a crisis where we're, we're just, you know, again, things are just very difficult. Instead of getting embittered, instead of getting angry, we just deeply, deeply at the core of our being turn to God and just express the fact that our trust is in Him. To trust God. It is in this sense that true, pure faith develops. There have been many times in my life, and of course our situation isn't entirely normal, where literally there is nowhere to turn because of the difficulties of life, and we just simply turn to God. And it's amazing how God works things out. Maybe in your situation right now, the crisis is employment. You need a job. You need a better job. You need money. You must not fret. You must not go to pieces. You must instead, at a very deep level in your, in, your, in your being, you turn to God and you cry out to Him. And you trust that God will help you and strengthen you to get through whatever it is going to be. Whatever it is going to be. So attitude, attitude is extremely important. And always remembering the long term. The long term. Now, what is going on today in your life as a crisis and difficulty has to be seen in terms of the rest of your life. The rest of your life. You know, the difficulty you have today, you need to understand that, that this isn't all there is. I mean, when I was 15 years of age, I couldn't wait to drive. Couldn't wait to drive. Started driving when I was 15 anyway. But, you know, you, you know what... You know, driving when you're young. You know, you think about all the things you're young, you, you're young you want to do. And then you get older and you're like, why do I care? <laughs> Everything has to be seen in terms of perspective. So, so uh, keep that long-term objective when it comes to the difficulties that are going on in your life. What testing really does is it produces reliance. Take a look at verse 4. It says, And let endurance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. It's the reliance on God that God wants to build in us. God wants us to trust Him, to look to Him, not to look to ourselves. Not to look to ourselves. You know, many of us in this room are, are, are pretty good at taking care of ourselves. All right? We've just developed this ability to push forward, put our shoulder down and push. All right? And that's good in life. I'm not going to discount that. 
Right? We need to be obviously personally responsible for ourselves if we hope to be able to be of an encouragement to other people. But at the very fundamental uh, core of our being again, it's not about you and me pushing through life by brute strength. It's about pushing with God's strength, recognizing that we need Him to give us wisdom in terms of where to push. You know, I mean, there are plenty of people going through life, climbing the ladders of life, really fighting the fights of life, only to get to the top of the ladder and realize it's on the wrong wall. You don't want to be climbing the ladder of life to the wrong place. You need the wisdom of God to know where you're supposed to be going. And so as we're going through life and we're dealing with the difficulties of life, make sure you've got your directions from God. Make sure that you're crying out to Him for wisdom every day to to be going in the right direction, to be exerting energy in the right place. Maybe you've got service in your life because frankly you're in the wrong place. You're pursuing the wrong thing. And God's allowing you to have those difficulties to kind of shake you up a little bit so you will turn to Him and seek His wisdom and direction. But it does demand you know, a little bit of consideration as to the process, uh, crying out to God in terms of difficulties, and just trusting, trusting God in His position of authority over this world. I mean, again, relying on God truly is recognizing that if you have been praying to Him, crying out to Him for wisdom, and things are difficult, it doesn't mean that God is abandoning you. It doesn't mean that God is angry with you. There are times when God wants us to pursue things that are very, very difficult. And, and we're going to feel the tensions and the stresses and the testings of what it is God wants us to do. There are tremendous things done by believers all over the world that come at tremendous cost. Make sure that whatever it is that you're doing that you are praying and asking God for wisdom. Because He will give it to you, and in the wisdom it will be the clarification of the direction that He wants you to go in. I know I have to say at this point, many, many, many of you have come up to me and expressed your concern all year. I still remember when Esther made that thing for me, okay, uh, last summer. It has been, I would say, an incredibly difficult year. And I would not be pursuing all that I'm pursuing except for the fact that I feel God's pleasure. So yes, if I look a little ratty, if sometimes it seems like I'm half dead, I, I accept these things and I apologize publicly because I know some of you have to deal with me in those situations, but I accept that God wants me to walk a path right now because there's some reason for it that I don't fully understand yet. But sometimes God will do that with you. He will allow you to go through difficulties and stresses because He's something. there is something He wants you to do that it requires that much energy and effort. But you have to be sure that in the midst of whatever it is that you feel His pleasure. Uh, again, Esther is teaching the kids, so I can't... You know, I love being able, through the years, working with Esther on different things. And I love being able to... And she helped me to recognize some of this. I love being able to encourage people to work as hard as you can and use your gifts in whatever way you can. But you usually need to feel God's pleasure in what it is you're doing. There are times when everybody in this community needs to vacuum and dump garbage. Does that make sense? But at the same time, there are things that need to be done in this community that demand, that demand people to serve, but it needs to be done in such a way that you're feeling God's pleasure. 
So as you're going through life, there are difficulties in life. As you're going through life, there are difficulties in life. But if you're doing something that's difficult and you've been praying for the wisdom of God to clarify direction and you feel God's pleasure in what it is you're doing, even if it's difficult, then you're right where you need to be. And you just need to continue moving forward. I don't think God... I mean, God is not mean. He's not going to make people destroy themselves, even me, you know, with the difficulties that come upon us. We need to just more and more rely on God to give us strength and more and more pray for clarity of wisdom from the Lord our God as we're living for Him, going through these times of difficulties and testings. Take a look at verse 9. It says in verse 9, for let the, uh, But let the brother in humble circumstances boast in his high position, and the rich person in his humble position, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. Here we have, I mean, he's using the illustration of the rich guy and everything else. It's really an understanding that uh, the difficulties of life, if we're handling it properly, produce humility. Humility, humility, humility. You know, in religious, among religious leaders, sometimes there's arrogancy. Right? Difficulties should make us more humble. Why should they make us humble? Because if we're truly pushing forward, doing what it is God wants us to do, the difficulties come. We're praying for God to give us wisdom and strength, to give us the tenaciousness to continue going in the direction He wants us to go. It reminds us more and more of how little we really play a role and how much God plays a role through us. Humility has to be the natural byproduct of doing things in life that are what God wants us to do. On the job, I mean, some of you guys are incredible. I mean, I hear some of the things you guys do. You know, it's wonderful to hear what different people do. And, and so it's very easy to say, I achieve. But even in the mundane realities of our jobs, to allow the humility of God to come into us, because whatever we do in word or deed, we should do it for the glory of God. And so to recognize in humility how God is able to work through us to give us the opportunities to do the things that we do, that we enjoy. That we enjoy. All right? Humility is really a byproduct of all the difficulties that come out of life. And, and, and God can only really work through humble people. Humble people. If you think you're hot stuff, you're hot stuff to yourself, you're probably annoyance to the people around you, but you're certainly not pleasing God. We need to have a humility, recognizing that we are nothing except for what the Lord our God has done for us, and to rejoice in Him. So, the last verse, happy is the one who endures testing, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. As we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, we will experience uh, you know, the difficulties of life, there's no doubt about it, but as we are enduring through those difficulties, because we're loving God and seeking his wisdom, God has promised blessing. God has promised blessing. And this crown of life, which, uh, you know, people argue about. It's almost like in rabbinics. There's like ten answers for every question, you know. Uh, it's really, I think, if nothing else, it's the fact that for every single one of us, we want to have a sense of achievement that our lives count for something. That our lives matter. When we are enduring through the difficulties of life and we're seeking God's wisdom and we're doing what God wants us to do, submitted to His will, 
and we continue to plow through what could be at times very difficult things, looking to God, developing our relationship with God, prioritizing that, that ultimately and fundamentally our lives will definitely count. We will receive this crown of life because God is pleased with us. That's all that really matters, isn't it? When everything is said and done, when we stand before our Messiah, whether in the earthly kingdom or you know, in the in-between time before that occurs, all that really matters is knowing that He says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And that reference is not just to ministry work of the synagogue. It's, it's good for everything we do, including crunching numbers, watching over kids, and, uh, and doing things. Everything we do in word or deed, done for the glory of God. Done despite the difficulties of life. Done according to the will of God, for the glory of God. With a tenaciousness to please Him and to feel His pleasure. So how do we sum all this up? First of all, I have to say that the very first question, if you look on your uh, announcement sheet, am I a slave of my own self-gratifying peaceful prosperity? I put that in there because that's a lot of where the world's at today, right? Uh, conflict avoidance. How many of you hate conflict? How many of you hate difficulties? You hate stresses? You know, uh, somebody I was talking to said uh, like uh, 53% of people when they graduate, 53% of men when they graduate college never read a book again. You know, that's a lot of men avoiding anything that reminds them of the tsaurus and difficulties of college. I don't recommend that approach, by the way. Okay? But... Do you value self-gratifying, peaceful prosperity over being a servant of God and a servant for your spiritual maturity? It's a good question to think about. I am totally okay with with enjoying life. I'm not a killjoy on that. But it is a mindset perspective because you will not endure. You will not move through difficulties well if only your, your pursuit is peaceful prosperity in this world. There ain't much peace in this world if you are a a, a committed slave of the Lord your God. How do I act or react to the difficulties I encounter in my life? Do you get angry, go to pieces, or do you humbly pray? That's also a good question. We all have issues. We all have difficulties. Where do you direct? It's like... uh, the third question, who do, you, who do you seek for encouragement? Do you go to other people first or do you, you actually go to God in prayer? I'm not telling you not to go to friends and seek encouragement, but it's where is your primary source of encouragement and strength? It should be the Lord your God. Your friends are great, but your friends are not going to necessarily, they're really not going to be the one to provide the wholeness and the strength you need to go through the difficulties of life. It's God. Your friends can come to write a little encouragement, but we need as believers to recognize that it's God. It's God who will sustain us. It's God who will strengthen us. It's God who will make the way. It's God who will give us wisdom to know what to do. And then finally, the last question, how do I demonstrate my love for God in times of testing? How do I demonstrate my love for God in times of testing? Again, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. In good times and in bad times. It's not easy. It's not easy. But we are God's slaves. And the Lord our God cares for us and loves us. Unlike, you know, a slave master in uh, colonial America 
or a Roman slave master back in the first century. We, uh, we have a God who is our master, who loves us and cares for us. And so let's be sure to love him back. Let's reciprocate. Whether things are good or bad, let's love him and live for him. Because we know that in loving him and living for him, we will have a crown of life. We will endure. We will have meaning and purpose that it's just not possible to have otherwise. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for the truth of your word and the challenge of it. And God, I thank you for the fact that we have the privilege, the opportunity to be your slaves through our faith in Messiah Yeshua. God, I pray that we would live our lives your way. And that God, when the difficulties come, we would turn to you. Deep within us, God, that we would turn to you in trust and obedience and to seek your wisdom to guide our way. Again, I, I pray for each one here's here today. I pray for those who might be having very difficult circumstances even now. That you would strengthen them and that they would be encouraged in you. That they would feel your pleasure, God, even in the midst of their difficulties. And if there's things that they need to change, that you would give them the strength to change and that they would change. That they would adjust themselves to move in your direction so that they would again feel your pleasure and that we would rejoice and what you will do in their lives. Again, we thank you for our Messiah Yeshua, whose death makes this all possible. Help us, God, to live worthy of his death. We pray this in Yeshua's name.